Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. So, 1986 was a big year for superhero comics. We've already discussed three of the biggest titles to come out that year. We sort of skipped over what was then a much bigger event in the eyes of pop culture at large. John Byrne's The Man of Steel, a six-issue miniseries published that same year, which relaunched Superman, the industry's first and best-known character. Now, this got national news coverage at the time, something that Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, I think, got a little bit of publicity after they had been published. Yeah. But long before a single issue of Man of Steel appeared, John Byrne was on like the cover of USA Today and appearing in Time Magazine and other kinds of publications, that same ilk. And he pretty much redefine Superman for a generation, uh, which I, I don't think is, is quite full hyperbole, but... No, I think that's, that's that's very much fair. As usual, we'll start by talking about our own experiences with the work in question. So, Justin, what is your history with Man of Steel? So, I got this in trade paperback sometime in the mid-90s from a, a comic book store in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, that I'm sure is... Not there anymore. Um, but yeah, very much after the dust had settled on the uh, and the post-crisis Superman uh, that Byrne introduces was well-established. He'd, uh, he'd died and come back to life by that point. So it was, uh, he's well-entrenched. Um, I actually thought really hard about how to articulate my feelings about this book because I, I want to get this right. <laughs> if you came up to me and asked me on the street, do you like John Byrne's Man of Steel? You know, I would say, yeah, you know, yeah, of course. Yes, I, I love it. It's awesome. If you said, let's sit down and really discuss Man of Steel point by point, which we'll do here, um, I'd go through it and say, oh, I don't like this. I don't think this works. I actively hate this part. Um, <laughs> and you might come away thinking, I, you know, this, this, this guy actually hates uh, Man of Steel. But ultimately, I do still just like reading it. Um, it's very charming, I think, which goes a long way um, in redeeming any sort of faults that uh, one might find. But I... I probably wouldn't have so many complaints about it if I didn't fundamentally like it so much that I've read it over and over again, you know? And at this point, I think that part of my enjoyment is actually engaging with the stuff that bugs me. You'll enjoy talking about it throughout this episode then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perverse pleasure, but it's, it's a pleasure nonetheless. <laughs> and the same goes for how I feel about Byrne as a creator. Like, he is my favorite comics artist of all time, but he comes with a lot of baggage but it's interesting baggage. So, uh, yeah, so just yeah. something about Brandon that sticks in the old craw and we'll, uh, we'll get into that. So I actually did not follow this at all that closely as it came out. And I was a total Marvel zombie at the time, as I think I've, I've mentioned, mm -hmm. but I, I do remember my brother getting at least some of these issues. Uh, he was sort of the John Byrne guy in the house because of X-Men and, and fantastic four. Whereas I've I've always been more of a Dave Cockrum guy, and uh, besides, Superman is kind of silly and boring, right? <laughs> um, but then of course I actually read them and enjoyed them, 
and I snapped up the trade as soon as that became available. Um, I still have it. Reread that very copy for this episode, and I don't know if trade paperbacks still do forwards, but back then there was such a like a prestige event to actually collect issues of a comic book between two covers and and, and publish them in a in a Walden books <laughs> or a B Dalton or, or whatever. So they actually they dragged Ray Ray Bradbury in and and had him write a forward and and there was this big essay by by Johnny Redbeard himself <laughs> at the front, John Byrne. So he's a, a comp- complicated figure, John Byrne, and the story achieved some controversy at the time uh, for many reasons that we'll get into, but it's still regarded as either the worst Superman story ever or the best Superman origin ever. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. And at the time, I thought it was pretty darn good. It updated Superman to the 80s, which I thought was a good idea in the 80s. <laughs> and in retrospect, uh, particularly in on this reread, my upteenth reread, it really uh, marvelized Superman by about 75%, which I think is what what DC wanted when they hired John Byrne. Yeah. So I guess get into the weeds here. So what, what led to this relaunch so crisis on infinite earth was destroying and remolding the dc universe into a more cohesive focused and homogeneous setting and to fit into that new dcu being birthed by wolfman and parez dc knew they had to do something about superman he's the first he's the greatest he's their flagship superhero but in the early 80s he was a bit stodgy and silly and dull Jeanette Kahn, well, yeah, I know, air through the teeth on that one, but that is that is the overall impression that, that people had, certainly the impression I had uh, as a wee lad. Um, I'm going to say Carrie Bates forever, and that's all. That's... <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that you, you are, that is very true about the perception. I mean, as a middle-aged adult rereading or reading those those comics, I, I find them delightful, but I think as a as a serious 11-year-old comic <laughs> collector, Superman seemed, you know, he's too powerful and you know, unstoppable and he's only vulnerable to kryptonite. And, um, you know, it, it, in my own mind, like, it, I, I ignore the fact that the Hulk and Wolverine don't even have though that that one weakness. <laughs> so they're, they're all, every superhero is unstoppable and invulnerable in their own ways. It's just that Superman's kind of codified as that. But... Anyway, uh, people much smarter than me and more creative, uh, such as Jeanette Kahn, Paul Levitz, and Dick Giordano took the opportunity presented by Crisis to shake things up. And they approached John Byrne, who was then pretty much synonymous with Marvel, uh, thanks to legendary runs as artist and co-plotter on Uncanny X-Men and both writer and artist on Fantastic Four. Byrne was really, to touch base with previous episodes, he was the Tom McFarlane or Jim Lee of his day. He was red hot. He could do no wrong. Uh, And like anyone would have, he clearly jumped at the opportunity to redesign Superman from the ground up. How often do you get an offer like that in your career? And could any of us (laughs) have said no to that? I I don't think so. So he did the Man of Steel and then he ran um, the regular Superman titles for about two years. Writing and drawing both Superman and Action Comics. Can you imagine anyone doing that kind of a workload these right. days? <laughs> uh, um, 
Superman was the solo title and main ongoing, with a focus on Clark Kent and his usual supporting cast at the Daily Planet, while under Byrne, Action Comics was essentially a team-up book, where his version of Superman would get to encounter and bounce off of established DC characters like the Teen Titans, Wonder Woman, and that old standby, Etrigan the Demon. <laughs> but it all started with Man of Steel, that six-issue mini that laid out the first 10 years or so of Superman's career, starting with him as an 18-year-old football star and touching on a, on a few highlights as he matured into the man of tomorrow and learned he was the last son of Krypton. What are some other? Oh, the Metropolis Marvel? Metropolis and... Marvel. Um, the Big Blue Boy Scout, although I don't think anybody... That's kind of a derogatory yeah, one, but... though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now the moment that you have been waiting for, the big question... What can be said about John Byrne as a creator or creative force in the industry? He has a reputation as a back-to-basic kind of guy, and he often got hired to do reboots of characters after this. The various chapter ones at Marvel, or Marvel the Lost Generation, or that weird Doom Patrol run, etc. But that only came after he did Superman. What made him the right person for DC to go to for relaunching Superman? Well, part of it is that he already had a pitch ready to go. Um, in our first full episode, I mentioned that at one point in the 80s, Marvel was in preliminary talks to license the DC characters to basically take over making the actual comics for DC because DC was having trouble actually making money from publishing. Byrne got wind of this, and apparently without even having been asked or even officially told that this was in the works, he came up with a complete type synopsis for a uh, quote-unquote first Marvel issue. And um, this this story comes from Jim Shooter, so as always, one is very of the source. <laughs> but apparently, he still has the Shooter still has the pitch and can produce this document. And um, it came up on Burns Forum once, a, a cursed place that I don't recommend that you go to. But um, I've done that I've done that work <laughs> for you. And it came up, and he was sort of like, "Oh, oh, oh yeah, that that, um, that was just a thing that I did." So um, he was sufficiently sort of low key embarrassed about it enough that I assume that that was that was genuine oh wow yeah but a lot of those issues actually make their way into man of steel there's some some changes but a lot of like the broad strokes are in um the description that shooter has given of that particular document hmm. but even if he even if he didn't already have ideas in his back pocket i think that burn gets this job off of fantastic four right it's not yeah technically a reboot but his first issue was actually titled back to the basics so he wasn't being subtle or coy about what his mission statement was here. But yeah, like his, his fantastic forerun. I mean, I don't know if it's fallen out of favor with modern fandom. I imagine that it could have for um, any number of reasons, but for a long time, sort of comic fan orthodoxy was the Lee Kirby run is the, is the best. And John Byrne is right there at number two. So like after this really revitalizing run on fantastic four, DC looked at that and said, well, do whatever you did there but just go even further. And that, you know, that makes sense to me from a business and editorial perspective. So what do you think Byrne was trying to do from the start with this reboot? And do you think he pulled it off? Do you think this character qualifies as quote unquote Superman in your estimation? So anytime that Byrne was asked about it, and obviously he was asked about it many times, you know, before, during, and after <laughs> this, this came out, 
he would say that the Superman legend had accumulated what he called a bunch of barnacles that he was, and he was just scraping them off, you know, just streamlining for a new generation. And that's very much in keeping with his self image as like the one guy who really understands and respects the core of the characters and what the creator's original intent was. And it's not just, you know, nostalgia on his part. He didn't just go, I'm going to wind back the clock to whatever it was when I was 10 years old or whatever. Uh, he also changes a bunch of stuff and introduces a lot of elements that had sort of, you know, bugged him about Superman all along. I think it's fair to describe him as a guy who has convinced himself that his personal preferences are actually carefully considered evaluations of some kind of objective criteria. So yeah, you know, like you would say, I like red better than blue, right? And he would say, no, blue is better than red. And you're an idiot for thinking that red is better. But like from his perspective, like... <laughs> If blue weren't better than red, he wouldn't like it. You know, he, he thinks like <laughs> genuinely there is an, there is like a, sh you know, a shining objective truth to this that he understands and that you don't. Do you think that's, am I, am I being mean here to our friend John? I, I don't, my understanding is that, and, and I, I don't know him as well as you do, <laughs> but I think that's probably an accurate summation of his, his public persona. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if we try to sum up his goal, I mean, I think it was to create a version of the character that, for one thing, integrates into a more cohesive post-crisis DC Universe continuity. So um, I think his powers are a little more scaled back so that he can, you know, stand next to the Flash and Green Lantern and not just totally outclass them as, you know, sometimes you might think that the pre-crisis Superman could just, you know, handle everything by himself. Why do you even have a Justice League? But, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> the definite problem, yes. Yeah. But more importantly, I think that he's creating a version of Superman that's more relatable to readers. And I know that we throw around that word relatable a lot, but, you know, I think that the pre-crisis Superman could be a complex and nuanced character in his own right if you know where to look for it, you know, or if you sort of read between the lines. And the, mm. pers the personality that Man of Steel Superman has is easier to grasp, I think, which is what being relatable really means, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the best evidence that this was a successful relaunch is that the current incontinuity Superman, and again, I'm uh, veering out of my comfort zone, but it's, I think it still <laughs> has a lot of the burn DNA in it. Like didn't the new 52 erase the burn Superman and then yep. the burn Superman basically comes back like sort of. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah, like, he, no, he is, yeah, it did. he is reboot proof. Like that's, yeah. that's not, not easy to do, you know? <laughs> So yeah, clearly a lot of this stuff worked and is working and will probably work for the immediate future, despite the many problems that I have with it, which we will, which we will get into. Yeah. I, I think for me at the time, this very much felt like Superman, the quote unquote Superman to me, there is so much taken from the motion picture, which was only eight years old at the time hmm. uh, to make this version. And that was the one I was most familiar with uh, outside of, say, the Super Friends. So this felt very, I guess, like, relatable is probably the right word. Um, I could connect with this Superman. He's forthright and honest and heroic throughout. He gets to show off nearly all of his powers. Sadly, super ventriloquism didn't seem to make the cut. <laughs> and there are other changes to the supporting cast that I think even now as being only improvements. But... There's a lot of baby thrown out with that bathwater. Superman was stripped of, of pretty much all of his whimsy and silliness. 
And again, while that might be a, a good thing to that overly serious 11-year-old boy desperate for other people to take comic books as legitimate art, or at least as seriously as he does, <laughs> um, looking at all that stuff now, that seems like a serious loss to a 47-year-old dad who kind of likes the Rainbow of Kryptonite flavors and Phantom's own criminals, and in particular, the pet dog. <laughs> yeah. The earliest Superman comics that I ever had were just sort of a random, you know, grab bag of pre-crisis stuff that I had, you know, somehow come across. Um, and I used to check out Michael Fleischer's Superman Encyclopedia from the library. We just happened to have that. And I ate up all that pre-crisis lore, like the the rainbow kryptonite and everything. You know, so like mm -hmm. any, <laughs> any claim that all this stuff is, you know, too complicated for people to get into and is off-putting, like I... 100% dispute that because that is exactly the sort of thing that I used to like to pour over and, you know, memorize which kryptonite does what and all that sort of thing. Okay, pop quiz, hot shot. Yes. What does jewel kryptonite do? Jewel kryptonite, so that focuses the telepathic energies of <laughs> Phantom Zone criminals into into our plane of reality, right? <laughs> I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'm, I just love that Joel Kryptonite is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it does, but I just love that it, it, it is a thing and that it's from the Jewel Mountains of Krypton. I know that much and, and I know it has a particular effect. I'm glad that you know it. That's just, again, that's the kind of goofy system. See, that's the thing. I think it was just thought of in 86. Um, it was just thought of as too silly, not hard to grasp or not hard to engage with, or but just. Because you're pitched at the eight-year-olds mm -hmm. and not at the twelve-year-olds who are reading Marvel, right? Um, and the, and one of the things that that Byrne got rid of right away was Superboy. And while Superboy's absence certainly streamlined things, but also seriously affected the Legion of Superheroes to the point where that team and that book has still not recovered from that excision. And all it needed at the time, and nobody thought of this, as far as I know. But Jeff Johns did in the early 2000s. Just say that Clark never adventured in the present as Superboy, but he was Superboy in the 30th century hanging out with all his future friends. Yeah. Um, so I don't personally like a lot of Jeff Johns' work, and maybe that's something that will come up at various points in this podcast. But this, is, <laughs> but this, this solution of his is so elegant that... Um, yeah. You know, it's like you don't need any pocket dimensions, or is the time trapper right? The time right. trapper messing with things or anything, or or a duplicate Superboy, just boom, done. Yeah, despite whatever misgivings I have about Jeff Johns, I felt like Paul Hollywood on the Great British Baking Show, where I just I felt like giving him a handshake. You know, <laughs> that's just such a clever and simple solution. Another thing lacking is that the original story of Superman is is essentially that of an immigrant who assimilates. He keeps his old world name of Kal-El to some extent, but by day he goes by Clark Kent. And now that's gone. He's 100% Clark. Superman is, is just a costume he puts on. But I think there's a depth to that earlier characterization that was cooked up by two Jewish kids from Cleveland, whose parents, at least, if not themselves, went through that same kind of assimilation that burn jettisons completely, and I think to Superman's detriment. And there's an essential loneliness to Superman's existence all throughout the Silver Age that somehow never got diluted by the presence of Kandor and the Phantom Zone criminals and the cousins and super pets or close personal friendships with nocturnal vigilantes. 
Short Man's role as the last son of Krypton defined him to a large extent and made him a slightly tragic figure despite all of his godlike power. But while Byrne has Clark discover and acknowledge his alien origin, Clark explicitly rejects it and identifies himself not merely as a human, but as an American. Which is weird now, um, but very much, I guess, in keeping with the, the uh, what was going on at the height of the Cold War. And there's, a, there's one line that always seemed a little off to me, even even when I was living in the middle of the height of the Cold War, where Superman says, thinking about how his parents found him in a field, in a spaceship, he says, quote, we thought I might be Russian, end quote. <laughs> there's, this, there's, a, there's a definite ellipsis between B and Russian. And it's like, okay, I realize that we're in a contentious relationship with the USSR and everything, but there's nothing wrong with being ethnically Russian, right? <laughs> Come on now. If there was, I'd be in trouble. I, <laughs> I, am, I am, in fact, half Russian. It's just really weird. It still strikes me, and I have to call out um, that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's this comes out. It's 1986. Reagan is president. That, 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 means, that means whatever you, <laughs> you want to think that means. But, yeah, I want to talk about the, uh, the immigrant aspect. And um, there's a quote in there where Superman says that he thinks and feels as an American. So here's where Burns coming from, and I'm going to quote directly from um, a post on his, again, message board that I don't suggest that you go to. Um, <laughs> so, so as not to be like accused of mischaracterization by paraphrase, right? He says, quote, being an immigrant myself, I have something of an insight, I think, into the way that Clark's mind works. I was born in England, and I am proud of my English heritage. I was also quite a lot older than Kal-El when I left home, so my connections would be stronger. But I grew up in Canada, and I have lived for the last 25 years in the U.S., and I don't ever, ever feel like a, quote, displaced Englishman, end quote. Uh, Clark would be proud, too, of his Kryptonian heritage, but later portrayals of him have tried to shoehorn in too much of the psychobabble of adopted children longing for and seeking out their biological parents. Excuse my French, but to me, they fall under the heading of ungrateful little shit, end quote. And I will probably bleep that. <laughs> <laughs> So first off, like, yikes. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Like, uh-huh. settle, <laughs> settle down there, uh, John. But yeah, I don't want to get super scolding here about anything. But like, you, one would wish that like, before John Byrne starts spouting out about like the immigrant experience that he represents, that like, he is a white guy coming from two countries where they speak English as a primary language. And that's, he might bypass a bunch of challenges and adjustments that, and experiences that immigrants from other parts of the world face. But leaving that aside, like there's a lot of stuff in Burns reboot that I disagree with. And some of that is just, you know, do I like red better or blue better? This I think is like a serious problem that I have fundamentally with how this uh, reboot works. Um, I think Superman as a metaphor for the immigrant experience is very rich and pre-crisis Clark Kent is assimilated to some extent, but to some extent he isn't because he still has that side of himself that, you know, goes to the fortress of solitude and interacts with people as Kal-El. Um, in some respects, he could be considered as like passing for Clark and there's a whole, um, a whole field of study wrapped up in that. Right. But mm-hmm. it's a complex issue of identity that Byrne just sort of ditches in favor of like, you're in America now, pal, you know, get over it. <laughs> I think that's a, I think that does a disservice to, um, to all the stuff that you can do with Superman if, if you bring that out. I completely agree. 
Um, that is, and, and it's not something that I was aware of in, in 86 or 87 or whatever. I, I, I actually read the book, but it's something I'm, I'm really aware of now. Um, and I, I think that that is a key component of Superman's character. And, and I'm, I'm sorry it was jettisoned, um, for whatever reasoning that, that Byrne had. Mm. But, um, I think that's probably enough table setting (laughs) maybe we can get into the actual comics so because there's a lot of ground to cover uh not only for us but for for john byrne in those six issues he's got to introduce krypton blow it up (laughs) have kal-el arrive on earth get adopted by the kents move to metropolis develop his superman identity and his costume and his persona uh introduce the daily planet and its cast have a team up with Batman, introduce Lex Luthor and his new status quo, and then connect Clark to his aforementioned Kryptonian heritage, and in a couple of panels, throwaway panels that perhaps most people missed, set up a mystery that will be picked up in the ongoing Superman title. So, that's a lot for six issues. There's hardly room to breathe. Does it work? Yes? Question mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know what what are, what, are, what are your what are your thoughts i found it a bit old-fashioned i think it's very much written of its time and that style has of comics is it's just not done anymore in particular the plots of these six issues there's an over-reliance on gun-toting normals who all seem to be vague revolutionaries too it could have used some more supervillains, uh or even the actual fight with that guy in lex's power suit yeah, I think there's sort of a structural issue going on with Man of Steel that sort of adds to that feeling really packed is that like this isn't Superman year one, right? Like this is like a bunch of snapshots over a span of Superman's life leading up to the, you know, the present day of what the relaunched ongoing series would be. And I think that, you know, because of that, there's no there's no overarching story. There's no focus. You couldn't adapt this into like one of those DC animated universe movies. Right. Like you, couldn't, you, you couldn't do that with this because that's just like a bunch of, it's like six episodes. You know, it is six individual ap- issues that collectively tell sort of a highlights version of Superman's life. And it's sort of interesting because Byrne was disappointed that he wanted to do more of like Superman learning the rope stuff. And then when he got the book, they were like, well, we're going to have to match up with the rest of the DC continuity. So like by the end of Man of Steel, he's going to have to be up to speed with all the stuff that you expect Superman to do. There are a lot of big changes and let's, let's hit on a, on some of them, starting with Krypton itself, which is, is no longer this 1930s science utopia. Uh, it is described as cold and sterile. It looks as much like the motion picture Krypton as possible while still being legally distinct. <laughs> um, Jor-El and Lara appear not to have even physically met before Krypton is set to blow up. Presumably Kal-El's conception was done artificially uh, by robots. It's very much set up so that when Clark does find out about Krypton, there's nothing to admire about it. There, there's no feeling of loss that that he really benefited from being raised in Kansas. Yeah, I remember hearing people say, and this is probably attributable to one person, but just got repeated a bunch. This is a Krypton that deserved to be blown up. But I, you know, I agree with you that you do lose out on the the tragedy of it. 
you know, and I think that that's part of what Byrne is talking about with his sort of, um, his immigrant perspective that like, you know, the old country really isn't so great. Don't get a, you know, you're in America now. That place sucked. <laughs> so it's, it is very much supposed to be, you should thank your lucky stars that you grew up in the heartland of America by good, you know, God-fearing, you know, farmers. <laughs> um, it should be noted that one thing that happens in here is he is not actually a baby on Krypton, technically, the way that he is in most versions of the Superman origin. The rocket attaches to like what's called a birthing matrix, which is like yeah. an artificial womb. And the upshot of this is that when that rocket ship lands on Earth, he is technically born on Earth and on very <laughs> pointedly American soil. Byrne has used, has really pulled out the stops and done all this sci-fi nonsense to say, look, this is not an illegal immigrant. He is <laughs> he's an anchor baby, right? He is, he's born on American soil. <laughs> That's so weird. And that gets picked up, I think, in like a some annual about like a possibility that maybe Superman could run one day for president because he is really in fact, he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those like, like else world, maybe it was Armageddon 2001, some sort of, Oh yeah. 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 Some sort of like possible future. That's a lot of effort for little reward. And all honesty. yeah, but that's, that's, that, that's how John Byrne's mind works. Right. It's in the same way of like, why does it, is it important that Norman Osborn and the Sandman have the same hair and maybe they're related. <laughs> why would you care that he was born yeah. on American soil, but he really sets up these little things in there and it's, yeah, it's, it's vexing and see already we're at the point of like, does this guy actually like man? Of Steel? <laughs> but it's yeah. true. I do. I do. I do. So, I do, okay. So let's talk about what a, a good development. So yes. the Kents, Kents are alive. <laughs> They're no longer found by a rare tropical disease that even Kryptonian science couldn't cure. They're around as as elderly parents um, for him to interact with and talk to. So they, they give someone for Clark to talk to who knows that he's Superman. He's not alone anymore. And they also emphasize uh, or reemphasize his humanity and his ties to Earth. And ultimately, per, for me personally, this is the best thing Byrne ever did. It makes Superman virtually unique amongst most superheroes by having living parents hmm. there's so many of them are are orphans and just to have them around and to have somewhere for him to go rather than a fortress of solitude filled with trophies to Krypt krypton's ancient past but just to be a farmhouse where he grew up it's such a great idea and i think that was what turned me off of the new 52 superman actually uh not splitting him and Lois, but when Grant Morrison reverted back to that Silver Age status quo of, of him being this lonely god and not having parents, I was like, but <laughs> but that was a good idea. <laughs> I mean, that's something that I personally go back and forth on because I do like that kind of, you know, the like you were saying, the, the lonely Superman, the, the sort of tragic figure, but I also agree with, that, with the fact that, like, that does make him unique and it gives him sort of a unique niche among his fellow superheroes that he is that Kansas farm boy. And that gets, you know, I don't think that's really part of his personality much pre-crisis, right? I mean, the fact that he grew up on a farm, maybe that plays in more into the movie, but it's by like in post-crisis continuity, people mention it all the time, you know? Right. So yeah, I think it, it's very useful, especially in an integrated continuity heavy post-crisis DC universe to have this distinct characterization and it ends up contrasting nicely 
uh, with Batman over the over the years. And he still has a set of dead parents too. So it's like he got you got the both. <laughs> <laughs> you got the dead parents and the live parents. Have your cake and eat it's it too. It's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> is what I'm saying. So I think the other net positive, I think most people will agree, is Lex Luthor. He is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Which is not me being political. This is this is in the text. <laughs> like to the point that a Luther solo prestige format book that was published uh shortly thereafter has a cover that parodies the art of the deal. And in a bit of prescience, Lex Luthor even became president in the year two thousand in the DCU. So he's he's no longer a rootless super criminal. He's no longer motivated to hate Superman because of an experiment that caused his hair to fall out. But He's still driven by petty resentment. So that's, he's the most changed and yet unchanged at the same time. (laughs) And I think this is probably the only development that has remained throughout continuity since 86. Um, Not just in the comics, because even in New 52, still had Businessman Luthor um, and other reboots pre, post, anti, uh, sideways, flashpoint, (laughs) hyper time or whatever. But um, even across all the media interpretations, even that Super Pets movie had businessman Luther and um, Clancy Brown, the best Luthor of all time in the Superman the Animated Series. Again, evil businessman Luther. In fact, yeah. the only one I can think of where it didn't hold true was Superman Returns, which no one liked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to find you on that one. That's that's, that's absolutely <laughs> nobody likes. Nobody likes I'm, sure, I'm sure it's somebody out there, but yeah. No, I, I I agree. I think Businessman Lex is a permanent part of the canon now. I don't really see them going back to just the guy in the you know the gray prison fatigues who breaks out every every six months. <laughs> Burns Luther doesn't seem to be a genius, which is sort of interesting. Like he's definitely yeah. smart, but he does you know he pays scientists to make him a Bizarro clone and to do all this stuff. I do think that later writers end up feeling like they miss that part about Luthor and they sort of give Luthor his crazy next level smartest man on earth genius back. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the right move because I guess it's, you know, it's just becomes a brain versus brawn thing. And that's a good thematic thing to, to base a rivalry on. Right. Rather than just having somebody who can throw money at a problem. Mm-hmm. If he's untouchable. I don't know how much of this was the plan, but like that gives Clark something to do as a newspaper reporter. You know, Superman can't just punch. I mean, he could just punch Luthor, but then that invites a whole bunch of other problems. But like Clark yeah. could theoretically take him, take him down. Yeah. I really like removing Luthor from Superman's past and not having them be um, childhood friends. That's something that sort of goes back and forth. And I don't know what the, the current status is, but I like that he is in Man of Steel. We see him being entrenched as, you know, the most powerful man in Metropolis. And then Superman comes and knocks him off his post. You know, it is petty, like you say, right? But it's so believably petty, you know? Yes. Especially in the the world that we live in. Like, I absolutely believe this motivation of (laughs) this guy was sort of a, almost sort of a banal kind of evil, right? Like, he owned Metropolis, but he wasn't like, at least that we see in Man of Steel, and he's not like tying up old ladies or, you know, (laughs) doing all this like explicitly criminal stuff he's just sort of like i control everything and i'm a jerk but so long as everyone pays me the right amount of fealty and and respect and that i deserve i'm happy yes but soon as as soon as their eyes turn towards something better and flashier and purer 
Man of Steel, Lex Luthor is someone who would prefer to be feared than loved. Right. <laughs> and it, and when Superman comes around, nobody fears him anymore, and that bothers him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so he's got to he's got to take Superman out to prove that he's best. And like I said, yeah, it's petty. It's absolutely petty, but it's it's better than losing your hair pettiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I definitely don't miss Clark and Lex being old friends or this all being because of yeah hair loss. Although we do get the hair loss in the in Man of Steel, I, I think that's sort of a nice touch that you see him gradually lose more and more hair as it goes on, and by the time that Superman, saw <laughs> the stress, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the stress of dealing with this alien, yeah. Um, or actually, they don't know that he's alien at the time. They they did, yeah. That's weird when you think about it. Yeah, we we think about that being such a big motivator in sort of modern Lex's thing is that he resents you know an alien presence on Earth. As far as he know, he is you know a Russian, <laughs> possibly. Yeah, he's the world's biggest capitalist. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't like the idea of a superpowered commie coming down. <laughs> he's got a it's red all... cape. Oh, it's all ties together. <laughs> it's, all, it's all coming together. Uh so. Another thing we've already touched on this is is that Clark Kent is the true identity. He's no longer a nerdy teenager with a secret. He's a jock. He's a football superstar. Clark is not the disguise that Kal-El dons to function among humans. We flip it. Superman is the disguise that Clark dons in order to maintain some kind of a personal life. He looks like George Reeves with Christopher Reeves' stoop, but he's still got that that massive Wayne Boring barrel chest. And he's just like enormous. Like he's said to be six two, but whenever he stands next to the Kents and Lois, they look like they're about five feet tall next to him. <laughs> yeah. It is it is almost a little hard to believe. But again, they have that idea that, oh, you grew up on a farm. I assume that all people from Kansas are just built like you because you got a bailing <laughs> haze, you know, for a living or whatever. Going back to what you were ta- talking about, looking like George Reeves, I think Bernard said that that was a, a big influence on mm-hmm. his portrayal of Clark is that like, so like George Reeves is not doing the Christopher Reeve thing of being, you know, oh, you know, golly, Mr. White. Yeah. He is, you know, he's, he's confident in his own way. He's, you know, perhaps, you know, literally mild mannered, but he's not doing the, you know, the, the, the somewhat cartoonish Christopher Reeve thing you know, that I love, but. That scene in Lois's apartment in the motion picture where Christopher Reeve physically transforms into mm-hmm. Superman and you're like holy cow acting number one <laughs> but two like you start to believe oh so people would not connect the dots <laughs> right. but yeah you're right the, in the Adventures of Superman TV show like George Reeves is straight bagged and he's got the rapid patter and he's not that dissimilar from Superman other than you know not wearing glasses <laughs> <laughs> and that is maybe something that's it can be a little bit harder to swallow because, because like you said, like he does just look so huge and he has those weights that he tries to keep around to say that this is why I keep in shape, but they're actually so light that Lois is like, these are, these are nothing to me, you know? Yeah. That was a good bit actually. Yeah. That's, that is a good bit. I I do question that like Clark, come on, like weights have numbers written on the side of them. You should just, <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, you know, that's a, it's, but that is, that is a clever, you know, that's one of those things that only falls apart if you think about it too much but that is a that is a really good bit but again like the the clark being the true identity that is burn doing this sort of ultra assimilationist thing and you know like in in the real world right like there are immigrants or not even first generation but several generations in who, who will have a traditional quote-unquote traditional name and an anglicized name 
and they use different names for different contexts. So it's not like one is the real name and one is a fake name. It's like these are, I call myself Kal-El when I'm dealing with Justice League people and with aliens visiting Earth. And I call myself Clark when I'm doing, you know, my daily planet, when I'm getting a hot dog at the at the hot dog vendor. <laughs> so there's, there's sort of a code switching there thing there. I think it doesn't necessarily have to be like one is real and one is fake, but Byrne is definitely on the side of he's yeah. this guy. Yeah, oh, I, oh, I got to just agree with you. I think they're both equally real. It's just mm-hmm. that they're they're adopted and depending on they're situational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And one thing that I do think is nice that Byrne plays up is he makes it very clear that nobody thinks that Superman has a secret identity because he's not wearing a mask, right? Right. People just people just think that this is a guy who is Superman twenty four seven, and that actually I think lends a bit of credence to the idea that. Because in the pre-crisis comics, somehow everybody knew that he had a secret identity and people would try to figure it out. And so like, if you, if you know that Superman is disguised as somebody and there's Clark Kent right there, who's six, two and, you know, and five more feet besides that and is towering <laughs> over everybody else, then it's like, okay, maybe, maybe I, you should figure that out. But if you, if you don't have any reason to suspect that Superman has a secret identity, it would be weird if you assumed that Superman puts on glasses and comes to work where you work, right? Yep. You're not going to find that needle in the haystack if you're not looking for the needle, if you don't think there's a needle in the haystack. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a nice touch on, on, on Burns' part. See, there are good, good elements. <laughs> there, there's, there's so many good elements. It's just that the ones that are bad. The bad, they stick out. Yeah. So one that I, the, another one that I like and and mm-hmm. perhaps people disagree, but I like that Superman is not moving th- planets around one-handed or flying through the sun to clean his suit anymore. He's still the most powerful here on Earth, but on a scale of 1 to 10, he's just an 11. He's no longer a 15. You know, sometimes I feel like the Superman is overpowered thing is maybe a scapegoat for, you know, I don't want to think of a clever way to actually challenge Superman. But it is like, I mean, that's a, that is on the other hand, a legitimate concern of like, if it's really hard to write this character, there's definitely a case to be made for scaling him down, especially, well, that's part of what we're talking about, about being less fanciful and less childlike whimsy and adventure Yeah, is that instead of, you know, sneezing and he extinguishes a star, right? he has to, you know, he has to, he has to work for it a bit more. And that fits in with the more rational sort of, or quote unquote rational post-crisis DCU where the Flash is still faster than any human could possibly be, but he's not, you know, vibrating and doing all these weird, you know, physics breaking tricks. He's just he runs fast, right? <laughs> oh no, those are those are all within physics. Those are flash facts. <laughs> no. I, I gotta I haven't brushed up since college. I should really if if you if you vibrate at the right frequency, you you can step into another universe. I that's that's just science. That's I apologize to the physicists. I've <laughs> I've been I've been, a, been a bit of a doubting Thomas on this, but studies have shown. Yes. Something else that comes up is there are some plausible explanations for powers. And again, plausible is in scare quotes, but Superman is implied to have this sort of bioelectric aura that the reason that the suit doesn't tear isn't because it's made of indestructible fabric. It's because he has this low level force field that comes off like a half inch from his body or something and keeps everything inside of that protected. It's a, it's kind of a weird over literalization of it in some ways, but it is trying to make these things seem more plausible than just like, well, is this just, is he just so strong that he can lift up an ocean liner? Like, is that all just mechanical muscle power or does he have some sort of tactile telekinesis aspect, right. which is 
hinted at throughout. And, you know, I don't think that you need that, but I understand the thinking of of wanting to sort of do an official handbook of the Marvel Universe kind of thing of trying to figure out what the actual limits of these things uh, might be. Or maybe not necessarily limits, but certainly, um, like you said, make them a little more plausible. Like how does a, a, even if you were strong enough to lift up a battleship or a, or an ocean liner, just the, the laws of physics, you just lift the, the five foot square area that your hands are in, in contact with and make a hole in the bottom of the ship. You just, the surface area is just, you couldn't do it. So right. implying that he's, he's having some kind of, Oh, it's when he he says, uh, it's funny how things feel lighter when I'm flying, I think. Yeah. That that he's he's affecting their their weight somehow or, or using some other some link to his flight um power. It doesn't have to be in there, like you said, but it, I guess it as you get older you do take these things more seriously <laughs> and you kind of look for at least some level of science fiction explanation rather than just hand waving it works because it works Mm -hmm. so yeah maybe that's one of the things i go back and forth on is like does it do you you don't really need the explanation but having it doesn't really hurt because they never really except for like when they clone superboy and everything and that the tactile telekinesis becomes his catchphrase it never really comes up it's just kind of this thing in the background yeah so one interesting development is that superman and batman have an ambivalent relationship. They are no longer the world's finest team. They appear to be at odds, but grudgingly respect one another. Um, I actually quite like Burns' take on Batman. It's, you know, it's it's not just the, you know, Clark, you idiot thing that Frank Miller does. It's sort of a... Which is an unfair characterization. <laughs> Extremely fair. But I know um, why you say it that way. <laughs> no, but you know, there's a... This Batman is, it's not so much that he thinks less of Superman. It's almost that sort of like you see in some versions of like Sherlock Holmes of just being, I'm three steps ahead and I don't have time to stop and explain this. And I'm just going to trust that you're going to work on my level here. So yeah, yeah, I like, I like that. I like that Burns Batman is not a jerk. He's just like, I'm just don't really have time to be polite here. Yeah. And Batman has this, an, this unusual plan where to keep Superman from just, you know, grabbing him and throwing him into local Gotham PD holding cell or something, he has a force field prepared that's keyed to super dense biology so that if Batman breaches the force field, it will trigger a bomb that will, that Batman says will blow up an innocent person in Gotham City. And it turns out that that bomb is in Batman's belt because he knows that Superman can probably tell if somebody is lying. So he had to make, he had to back up this bluff with something genuine but also, I would never put an innocent person in danger, so that's, it's just me. This is something that, at the same time, is really clever and interesting and like a cool twist, but also makes no sense if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like, why doesn't Superman scan him with his x-ray vision and see the bomb in his belt, you know, this sort of right. thing? There's so many... <laughs> There's so many holes, but like you said, it does kind of it works within the framework, and I I agree that's probably my favorite issue too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably because it is the most comic booky issue. <laughs> There's yeah. so much, so it's just two superheroes teaming up, and you have that kind of that Marvel friction, but because their power sets are so wildly <laughs> divergent, you can't have the first they fight, then they gain respect thing. Right, so. <laughs> Batman has to outsmart Superman somehow 
so that they, they can then work together so that Batman can prove to Superman that he's on the up and up and Superman kind of, okay, I see what you're dealing with and how you're doing this. And I understand better where you're coming from, but I'm still going to keep an eye on you because gosh darn it, you're a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I am. I, I will say that I am glad that we have the world's finest team back now. And that, you know, that gave their relationship something interesting to sort of grow into in that post-crisis DC universe, right? Absolutely. One of my, my favorite things in fiction, actually, and uh, across all kinds of media, is two people or, or a group of people who are thrown together and, and don't necessarily have any reasons to, to trust one another. And then, you know, 10 years later, they're best friends and willing to go to the ends of the earth for one another. I, I, that just kills me. Um so going back to like Morrison's JLA, that World War Three, Superman's imprisoned and, and Batman's going to figure out a way to get him out. Oh, it gets me. It gets me right here in my heart, Justin. Gets me. And Byrne has set that up so that you get that payoff. <laughs> right. However many years down the and line. And it all goes back to Johnny Redbeard. I know. That's weird. So moving on from from the changes. The biggest deals in, in Man of Steel, and arguably the co-star of the book, is Lois Lane. What do you think of Burns Lois? Um, she's great. And a podcast, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I no, I think yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Burns Burns Lois. I think that again, when they did the re, the New Fifty Two reboot, I think that that Lois still has a lot of the Burn you know element to it. And I think that is to some degree Burn actually looking back at Siegel and Schuster's you know tough professional gal before the silver age meter into this sort of, you know, nosy snoop that they had to, you know, that Superman had to quote unquote teach a lesson to. Right. But like, if you look at the, at the original golden age comics, like she is a stone cold professional. And I think that's something that burn is sort of hearkening back to. And I think that there's also a lot of uh, Margot Kidder in, yep. in his version of Lois Lane. I think she's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not, not going to pretend any, she's smart. She's principled. Um, she's tough. She's courageous. Uh, Lois can sometimes be tricky to write because you have to believe this living God can fall in love with her. But, you know, I think the groundwork is laid here for a, a great Lois who can be an equal to this Clark, even though she's she's just a normal human. And she's all the great things about normal humans that you can find. She's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I do maybe think that some of the later writers do a little better job of showing what Superman sees in her. I feel like Burns Clark, because he is so much more confident than we're sometimes used to in versions of Clark Kent, he comes off as this, you know, sort of alpha yuppie, right? And so when, when Lois, so Lois is mad at him throughout the series because the deal is that Clark Kent gets the scoop on Superman, and that's sort of what he uses to sort of make his way, get a job at the Daily Planet, right? And she is, yep. you know, she thought that she had the exclusive, so she is mad at Clark for years and years after this. And Clark's attitude towards this, it's that like he likes that she's feisty, you know. And it's like, <laughs> I sort of I like a challenge, you know. She's she's she, she's too. Yeah. I think in, in Superman number one, he says something like, "She's too vivacious for me to completely give up on her." I'm like, that's a little, that just seems a little gross, but <laughs> yes. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit like I like a challenge. I'm, I'm Superman. I deserve a I deserve a Superwoman. <laughs> I'm gonna wear her down. As very as we said in our in our our zero episode, 
in a truly progressive society, nothing ages well, <laughs> and yeah. this that is certainly an element that uh, that has not aged well. Is yeah, is um that paternalistic, patriarchal attitude towards from our hero <laughs> towards <laughs> yeah. our heroine, but at the same time, she is well. Well, Clark's attitude is kind of mm, um, uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, Lois herself is not presented that way to the reader. Yeah, definitely. No, that's, you know, again, maybe I'm not the exact person who was the arbiter of sexism and, you know, portrayals, but like, I think that this is a a great um, character period, right? Yeah. One thing that I actually, I like about the way that Byrne portrays her is John Byrne has like a legitimate eye for fashion, you know, that a lot of Mm -hmm. artists don't. Cause like, I feel like a lot of artists, you know, you draw Lois Lane, it's like, okay, well, what? What do women wear in an office? You know, I don't know, pencil skirt and like a blouse, maybe a jacket. Whereas like you get the sense, you know, that John Byrne has like looked at fashion magazines and draws, you know, he draws like actual outfits that are not just from your, you know, your mental Rolodex of what people wear. He looks like he's using photo reference and stuff. Yeah, there's so that exactly there's this great montage of Lois trying to chase down Superman for an interview where she arrives at the scene of the event right after he leaves. And it's it's like you know, one word of the sentence, he was just here or whatever, but each panel, she's in a different outfit and they're all distinctive and classical. And I think you're absolutely right. He's, he's like looked at fashion magazines and thought about what this trendy, cause she's a yuppie too. <laughs> right. Clark isn't the only one turned into a yuppie in the mid eighties was, would be wearing out in mm-hmm. a city like Metropolis while she's chasing down a story. One more thing I'll add about Lois is burn. I think it's burn adds this background for Lois that she's an army brat, or maybe it might've been Marv Wolfman because he was writing the adventures of Superman book, but it was, this was a, a post-crisis innovation because pre-crisis Sam Lane was, I, th- I think his, I think her parents were farmers actually, huh. according, according to my Superman encyclopedia that I have <laughs> with me at my, on my bookshelf at the ready. But yeah, the, the, the army thing, which, and that again, that persists through reboots and, through the new movies and stuff. Yep. And I think that's sort of, it's one of the, one of those things that like makes sense when you think about it, right? Like, oh, she grew up with a, you know, a somewhat disapproving dad. I think there's a burn issue where her dad is saying, you know, like, well, I, you know, the good Lord didn't see fit to give me a son, but I'll, I'll make do with the, the girls that I have. But it's yeah. sort of, you understand sort of where, why this Lois, this version of Lois is maybe a little more caustic is because she had to put up with sexism, like in the house. Right. Yeah, but that's also why she doesn't take crap from anybody, too. Mm-hmm. And why when the revolutionaries attack the Lex Luthor's boat and she's she grabs a gun. Right. <laughs> and she's, you know, she knows how to, probably knows how to field strip that, that weapon. Yeah, I didn't realize <laughs> that, that, um, that Byrne out of the army brat background. I think, I think you're right, though, because I think there's a reference in Man of Steel to General Lane. So I think that mm-hmm. might be the first first appearance of of that maybe that got i'm sure that got probably got developed in adventures of with with wolfman but yeah interesting and and you're right i think that yeah see all these little little bits these little bits that, that anything that adds again i want to say i love man of steel <laughs> it's, it's wonderful in so many ways yeah. it's just that there are those you know you look at a painting for long enough and you see like the couple of rush strokes that are weird right so as as we we mentioned earlier, Byrne was pretty vocal both then and uh, probably even now 
about how his first experience with Superman was via the George Reeves TV show. And rereading this series, uh, it struck me for the first time that it, it very much reads like TV script. Because outside of the Batman episode, which has a very 66 villain and the Bizarro issue, the super feats are largely the kinds of things to be achieved with the TV budget. You never even see Superman's heat vision. His eyes just glow and stuff melts. And then there's like lots of hippies and generic South American rebels with guns. There's no significant challenge for the Man of Steel. Although, as you know, we'll get Metallo very shortly thereafter. But it ends up being a little dull and safe. I think it was probably revolutionary at the time. But with the passage of, of almost 40 years, I think a lot of its impact has lessened. There's a lot of the fun of Superman has been removed. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. But I think that maybe from what Byrne is trying to do here is sort of trying to like recalibrate after some of the Silver and Bronze Age stories where he's, you know, flying across the galaxy and cracking the time barrier to get lunch with Abraham Lincoln or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's almost nothing here that you couldn't do in the first Christopher Reeve Superman movie, right? With that, yeah. with that level of technology. I suspect that what it's trying to do is trying to emphasize Superman's like super NAS by putting him in real world settings rather than just being another fantastical element in a bunch of sci-fi wackiness. So like revolutionaries are something that, you know, again, it's, it's Reagan's America, right? This is something we're terrified about yeah. all the time is that South American revolutionaries could just <laughs> jump out of an alley or jump out of your cruise ship. And, <laughs> and force you to become a communist. Yeah. Right. And we talk about this with the, um, with the Marvel movies too, about how like, Oh, it's all just a, you know, CGI, CGI armies fighting each other with portals in the sky or, yeah. <laughs> whatever the specific thing that people say is right it's it's about like sort of shrinking the stakes here to be like well these are guys with guns in the real world guys with guns are a big problem mm -hmm. and here's a guy who comes in and he just you know he shrugs it off and that's it you know it sort of re-emphasizes like oh yeah like just the basic stuff of being superman being bulletproof is pretty cool in and of itself he doesn't necessarily you know have to be sneezing and blowing out a blowing out a star or whatever um <laughs> But it it does sort of imply though, because like I said, like this the implication is that like this is all like the first, you know, ten years or whatever of Superman's career, and then the relaunched Superman number one is, you know, the present day. It yep. implies that like Superman was not up to a lot of stuff in that first yeah. in the first whole section of his career. Like he didn't have any supervillains, pretty much. It was he was he was fighting Luthor. Yeah. In, you know, vague ways. And he had Bizarro, but Bizarro is destroyed after this one incident. So, yeah, it makes it seem like all he was doing was like, you know, saving people from volcanoes and <laughs> catching airplanes falling out of the sky. And only like in year 10 of his career is like, maybe we should try a supervillain. And hippies. Fighting hippies. Yeah, <laughs> fighting hippies. And like, the hippies like, can be a formidable foe. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only like year 10. It's like, well, what if, what about, you know, what about a kryptonite powered, you know, cyborg? Maybe that would be. <laughs> Holy crap. That's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to pull my punches anymore. Yeah. Very. He's had it easy for, for far too long, this Superman. Now it's time to unleash the prankster on him. <laughs> uh, I, I do like, I don't know what you, what are your feelings about, about Magpie? Maybe not your favorite Batman rogue, right? But I do like the sort of Batman 66 atmosphere mixed with, you know, a, a 80s kind of edgy danger. 
Yeah, I again, I something that I didn't realize reading this in 86, 87, that, but even as much Batman TV show as I watched as a as a smaller tyke, but it's something I'm hyper aware of now is is all those uh rogues they invented specifically for the show just to have whatever guest star Liberace or, or whoever come on. Um mm-hmm. that Magpie fits in with that aesthetic and I have a much greater appreciation for her now than I did then. Then I was like, who is this? Why is this? <laughs> <laughs> Where is this? What's this is nothing. Why not be the Riddler or Catwoman or something? But no, now I'm like, yeah, cool. That's a great little bit. And again, like I said, because Burns Superman is George Reeves, his Batman is Adam West. With, you know, a a, a bomb strapped to his belt, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> I set that up without even knowing. <laughs> you set it up, I knock it down. <laughs> well, Man of Steel is not really a retcon. It's a relaunch. It had a cascading effect on the DCU continuity. So I already mentioned how the Legion of Superheroes was basically destroyed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all those unnecessary problems. But also, um, Superman, as a founding member of the Justice League, was changed. He's he's not a he's not even on the team anymore. So all those stories still ostensibly happened, but without Superman being there, I guess. So that leads to some mental gymnastics. Does Martian Manhunter now take credit for most of Superman's actions in those stories? Do we have to assume that via shapeshifting and super speed, John did his Superman impression in all those adventures? Or do we just have to just X Superman out and all of our back issues? The way that post-crisis continuity works is that some of the things that you read in the previous, you know, 20, 30 years, some of those things happened, some of them didn't. And like you said, I don't know what we're supposed to do with, you know, any random, you know, the Steve Englehart issue of Justice League, (laughs) if Superman's there or not. For as comprehensive as Man of Steel tries to be, I almost feel like we could use a look at what Superman's place in the context of other superheroes besides Batman would be. Like in, maybe in another issue, there's something about, oh yeah, there's a, a new Flash in in Central City. Or is there any notion that there were superheroes in the J- the Justice Society, you know, in World War II before this? We don't really we don't really get that. And part of that is just I wonder if nobody if they hadn't figured it out yet when it was time yeah. for, for burn to write this. And it's just like, well, I can't wait on, on you figuring it out. So I'm just not going to mention any of the other superheroes and we'll just, we'll use who's who to, to <laughs> you know, and secret, secret origins to, to work this, this stuff back in later. Well, I think they were also um, shuffling the, the justice society off into another dimension where they would fight Surtur or something because they they couldn't be kept around so they they, there's so much was up in the air i think for all those other properties too that maybe like batman is a given more so Mm -hmm. than any anybody else um even one and wonder woman was getting rebooted so that she wasn't around for those 10 years like batman and superman were so maybe there's just too many question marks so they just focused on on what they knew Mm -hmm. yeah and that's not maybe not a a bad impulse but yeah, it is. It is sort of funny when people compl- were complaining about the new Fifty Two about, well, didn't they work any of this stuff out ahead of time? It's like they didn't do it last time. Why, why would they start? <laughs> they never they start yeah, now? they never. There is no plan. Do I look like someone with a plan? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, 
so to a lesser extent the new role for luthor changes all those old superman stories as well so it's like what is in continuity what is not what are stories in some kind of nebulous in between state and then why do we care <laughs> outside of maybe Roy Thomas who, who, who needs to know that these, these are official or that they're part of continuity. I mean, they obviously happen. I, I have the issues <laughs> or I can go and, and find them and, and read them. So what's the big deal? <laughs> right. I mean, I do, I understand the, the Roy Thomasian perspective. If like it is, I mean, it is weird that, like I said, like the Engelhart issues of justice league, those still, technically count but like i don't think that any superman or action stories prior to 1986 can have you know considered to happen as such as far as the post-crisis continuity is concerned um but again like yeah i don't i don't care i still cherish my my classic stories with terra man and vartox that can't possibly (laughs) (laughs) so burn superman would last for at least Another two decades, long after the break we have defined for the Iron Age. But Byrne would only stay with the character for about two years, and when he left, he basically threw a hand grenade behind him as he slipped out the door. <laughs> uh, in his last story, Superman kills three Phantom Zone criminals in a pocket universe where they have wiped out all of humanity. This story also introduced a Supergirl, a protoplasmic entity called Matrix. So you've already got the Silver Age stuff creeping back in, Phantom Zone Criminals, Supergirl, and they are the only bits and pieces that to, to come back into the canon. Over the years, pretty much everything comes back. He gets a Fortress of Solitude in the Arctic. Kandor is there. There's a Superboy, not the one that, that we remember. He's a clone, but still a trademarkable name. Uh, we get Azov, actually several different kinds of zods um and all the phantom zone criminals um the 1930s science utopia krypton comes back crypto comes back nightwing and flamebird come back yeah <laughs> um and so on and so forth superman never still never quite gets past that 11 in the power department but everything else kind of returns but yeah if if nothing else burn having removed a lot of these silver age elements from the canon gave later writers something to do, you know, like I could very much imagine like if you're writing Superman and you don't really have something to do for that month, it's like, well, what if, <laughs> should we do the Fortress of Solitude now? Like, is it, is it time that we do, is it time that we introduce this Silver Age element? And so it, it definitely gave a certain forward momentum of all of this stuff was, was written out and there was baby being tossed out with the bathwater, but you could get the baby back if you wanted to, <laughs> you could. Yeah. And, but and a generally new twist, Lois and Clark grew closer, got engaged, and Clark revealed that he was Superman, bef- and then they got married, which, you know, not before he died, of course. Um, and then, like you said, um, they did away with that with the new 52, but the burn version of Superman that was married forced its way back into continuity because mm-hmm. people preferred that version, <laughs> much like people preferred the silver age wackiness at least toned down versions of it and we got a couple of supergirls too um right so but eventually we got the official kara zorel and then there's all the power girl shenanigans she was atlantean and then she was kryptonian again and we got her too and everything so yeah it all comes back eventually because huh, we love to recycle <laughs> don't we yep. we do so 
we have talked a lot <laughs> about this book, perhaps more than anyone should. But so we should probably start to to wrap it up. Um, what do we think about this book? Are we happy with Man of Steel? Does it still work in in twenty twenty two as it did in nineteen eighty six? I don't think that a reboot was maybe strictly necessary. You know, I think that Byrne. It, it's within his skill set that he could have just ignored what he didn't want to touch like he did on Fantastic Four. And instead of being so concerned about where Superman came from, it's like, well, what can we do with Superman? And, you know, John Byrne is a creative guy. He could think of, you know, end arounds and new twists on things. And I do think that, that it set a bad precedent because I feel like now if the Superman books are getting to be in a lull, people just go, well, we'll, we'll do a new origin, right? That'll, <laughs> that'll get people interested. So I, th- I think it sets a bad precedent, but like the, you know, like you said, and I, I do have to concede in the eighties, Superman was seen as a bit old fashioned and comics fans are just fundamentally not excited about the character. Right. And so if that reboot is what it took to get people to pay attention, well then, you know, I suppose that that pays for itself, but yeah, ultimately you know, despite all my misgivings about the, some of the specific changes to Superman and not, not all, like I said, um, these stories are just really engaging, like reading these, these, these six issues, you know, not even caring about what this means for continuity. I just like these stories, you know, and yeah. by contrast, um, Mark Wade did and, uh, Lionel Francis, you did Superman birthright, which is a, the next quasi official origin of <laughs> Superman. And I like all of the changes that Wade makes there on the whole better than, than Burns changes, but I don't like reading (laughs) birthright as much. Whereas I will just gladly read man of steel, you know, any, any day of the week. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I, it's hard to put my finger on what exactly it is. I mean, I'd mentioned charm and I think that's a big part of it, but it's sort of like Steven Spielberg where Burns is just such a good storyteller that I'm like, I don't know what makes jaws and Raiders of the lost Ark so good you know like i know a little bit about visual storytelling and stuff but like i can't intellectualize what's so good about it but you watch jaws and you're like this is nobody's done this better what 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 is it that he's doing i don't understand it and that's sort of the same feeling that i get from john burns comics is that even when i don't like the changes or the story that he's telling he just tells it so well (laughs) you know i think one aspect of that is the episodic nature of these issues where you're just kind of dipping in for the highlights whereas i i i believe birthright told a complete story yeah i mean that 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 you could adapt into a you know animated movie or something and it would it would hold together yeah so i think because of the episodic nature of this and they're one and done like each issue is is unto itself you're getting mm-hmm. a complete story i think that is part of it um I would say in general, I think this still does work. I think there are, are definite weaknesses and I think we've outlined them, but as a bare bones kind of reset a new status quo, uh, this is a very solid Superman. It's definitely, I don't know, I guess I shouldn't say definitely, but I, I think this is a, one of my favorite versions. And I think mm-hmm. a lo- the three elements that I like and that, that make it work could only have been done with a reboot and that are you can't bring the kents back to life otherwise you can't make luthor a successful businessman and and not a criminal 
Not that they didn't try with stuff like the planet Luxor or Luxor or whatever, you know, that sort right. of thing. Um, and then scaling Superman's powers down. They tried that with the Sand Superman in the 70s, and that didn't keep in the way that throwing all the Silver Age stuff out by Byrne didn't keep either. The, the, the stuff mm-hmm. wants to come back. Uh, which ties into Grant Morrison's theory about how the DC universe or the Marvel universe are living things in and of themselves, that they force changes regardless of who were is writing or, or drawing them. So I think a reboot to get to this version was necessary. I don't think you could have scaled back those different things or emphasized bits and pieces and and had this much success where parts of it are still like I said, um, integral to the the con- mm-hmm. our our concept of who or what Superman is these days. So yeah, I don't know. I still like it. Um, it's weird that my favorite parts are not really Superman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it's mostly you know having the 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 Kents around. It's the redefinition of of Luthor. It's the more brassy and caustic and self assured Lois, and Superman is still. I mean, he looks great, even with the fish swimming on his chest instead of an actual <laughs> S. But I, I think later creators would do better by this version of Superman than than Byrne did. Yeah, I think that, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I was not a big reader of the the Triangle Years. Oh, I was. <laughs> but um, you know, people still look fondly back on that. So that's just I just, I guess I just wasn't. You know, you had to be there thing that I just wasn't. I mean, I certainly, I was locked into that for a time. And then I, I hit a, a point of Superman fatigue. So um, mm. there's got to be some kind of happy medium. And But the weekly Superman comics and, and, and the how each book highlighted a different aspect of his personality or supporting cast or mythos, that was really, I thought that was a good formula. So final question, I guess. Uh is this John Byrne's magnum opus? Would he ever be this good again? Was he ever this good before? I guess that's Ooh. three questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my favorite or second favorite or some kind of permutation of favorite uh, comic book ever is his Fantastic Four. So I think that's the best thing that he's ever done. I think it's the most John Byrne thing he's ever done. But like, I do think there's definitely a case to be made that Man of Steel and his Superman reboot in general is his defining work. You know, like if we imagine the encyclopedia of comics creators in 50 years time, that first sentence, well, I, I think it might be, you know, he rebooted Superman for, you know, a generation and, and, and beyond. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think, I think maybe this is objectively, maybe if such a thing exists, that this is his defining achievement as a comics creator period. But um, I think that's fair. Is he ever good after this? I mean, the Iron Age, my friends, is not very kind to John Byrne. I don't <laughs> feel. Uh, I feel like maybe the last great John Byrne work is Batman Captain America, as as far as I'm concerned. There's, he does some good art jobs, but like the production styles and the computer coloring and just different changes in what fans want out of out of comics, I don't think he recovers from that. I do have fond memories of at least the first generations series maybe not so much the second one but that kind of else worlds what if batman and superman got old (laughs) 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 they debuted in 38 and 39 and then time passed normally 
those were kind of fun little what ifs. Um, yeah, I think um, this is probably, like you said, the defining work. If this is the and it's and it's short too. Like it's it's the six issues. It's not the two years he spent uh, on on Superman afterwards. It's not the however many years he spent on Fantastic Four or X Men or Iron Fist or or, or whatever Starbrand. So, Starbrand. Starbrand. That. Oh, yeah. See, this is your fascination with those two men is because they're polar opposites, aren't they? They're just. They're the, yin and they're the, the yin. same guy. <laughs> they're the same guy. They, two egomaniacs who hate each other. It makes so much sense. <laughs> uh, to the listeners at home, we are referring, of course, to Jim Shooter, our our, our co-star, the third member of our podcast, <laughs> <laughs> an enemy of of John Byrne. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Starbrand. Yeah, good stuff. It's not. So, um. <laughs> no. No. So, <laughs> any any last words? Any last thoughts on on Man of Steel? Um, those Krypton outfits are pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah they are actually. That's all. <laughs> Very sci-fi. They look cool. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. So, after dealing with the divisiveness of Burns' Man of Steel, we thought that we'd do something completely non-controversial that nobody in comics could ever possibly fight over: whether Spider-Man should be married or not. Has anybody ever 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 talked about this? I don't. I don't recall anybody online talking about this, so this will be <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Uh, next time we're looking at the wedding of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson and how their relationship defined and tested the limits of Spider-Man in the Iron Age. I hope you all come back here for that. Um, until then, you can reach out to us at ironagecomicspodcast at gmail.com. Looking for feedback, looking for, you know, suggestions, whatever you got. Um, just say hi. Uh, we're releasing new episodes the first and third Wednesdays of the month, but you can subscribe or follow the Iron Age of Comics on your podcasting app of choice and we'll come right to you. Please consider rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review and we'll read it out on the air. Is that gaming the algorithm? Yes. <laughs> but do it, do it anyway. It actually does apparently move the needle for us. And consider sharing our show amongst the comics reading people in your life. If you know somebody who's weirdly as obsessed with John Byrne as I am, maybe they will get something out of this. Maybe they will hate me. Maybe we will fight to the death. But maybe like me, they will be get a perverse enjoyment out of it. So, <laughs> But yeah, thanks for listening, as always. And for the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zydok. And I have been Jim Cannon. Thank you, and good night.